Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. How are you this week, Paddy? I am positively phenomenal, Gary. Brilliant. Absolutely phenomenal. And this week, we're going to be discussing heart rate variability. So this is a topic that is somewhat detached from the last few discussions, but we said we'd slot it in here anyway, because it kind of makes sense. So in the last few podcasts, uh, over the it's probably a couple of months at this point, we've been discussing all things related to uh, starting at the basics of cardiovascular physiology. And then we've built up and discussed things like blood pressure and how your lifestyle can affect that. Um, we've also discussed um, atherosclerosis and heart disease and how nutrition can kind of slot in there. So at this point, you kind of have, um, if you've been listening to the podcast regularly, you probably have an overview of a lot of the things that can kind of move the needle in terms of, of cardiovascular health. But this kind of brings us into the realm of more applied training practices and nutrition and health to some degree. But this, this podcast in particular is probably more focused on something that people use to plan their training, um, depending on the sport, depending on the individual, but it is something that you'll have seen um, a lot of personal trainers uh, start to use and start to interpret, whether it be with themselves or with clients. Um, And that is heart rate variability. So, I suppose before we, we get into any application stuff, it's important to understand what we're actually talking about. So heart rate variability, very simply, is the amount of variation between heartbeats, okay? And that might seem like a weird thing to measure, but basically what it's giving you insight into is the balance or imbalance or relative contribution of the different branches of the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is part of the nervous system that is, as the name suggests, autonomic. So it's something that you don't have voluntary control over. It's something that you can do different things to influence it, and hence there's indirect effects. But um, when it comes to contracting your gallbladder, for example, none of us ever have to think about doing that, okay? We (laughs) <laughs> you don't squeeze <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're contracting your bicep and you're lifting something that's a, a different branch of the nervous system okay so it's the somatic uh, nervous system and you're using motor nerves there whereas the autonomic nervous system it's basically going on in the background okay so it's going on without um, you having to influence it so the different branches of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic, which is more fight or flight, or just think of it as the kind of stress response, the alarm system, um, that, that, that system is going to be um, basically leading to uh, different things that you would associate with being in a stress state. Now, with that said, that's not always the case, because the thing with the, the autonomic nervous system is that it's also regulating just normal physiology. So normal things that are going on in like every second of your living life. Okay, so it's not always the case that it's just when you're really relaxed, or you're now in a parasympathetic state, or when you're really stressed, you're now in a sympathetic state. The reality is that the majority of life is just kind of somewhere in the middle with different systems being regulated at different levels. Um, So it's not all just just one simple thing. Um, The parasympathetic nervous system, I should probably give some examples of, of what a sympathetic response would be. So sympathetic response, if you think to, if you think about how you feel when you're in a stress state, or even during exercise, 
you can get a, a dry mouth, for example. So you, you don't get the same volume of uh, salivary production. So you don't, you don't get the same amount of saliva. So it, there's innervations in the glands um, within your mouth and around your mouth. Um, your eyes, for example, if you're in a, in a sympathetic state, your eyes are going to uh, dilate. So you're able to, you're basically prepared to, to be able to, you know, see everything that's going on around you. Um, I think that's correct. Anyway, is it dilate or constrict? Sure I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure that makes sense. Um, but, but yeah, basically a lot of the time you've got kind of antagonistic functions. Uh, that's not always the case. Um, but basically you've generally got an antagonistic function between the, the stress state, the sympathetic state and the parasympathetic or that kind of relaxed or rest and digest state. So the digestive system is often an easy way of looking at this. So with the digestive system, uh, generally, if you're in a sympathetic state, uh, you're not going to be, uh, taking care of your digestive function very well. Whereas if you're in a parasympathetic state and that's doing more of the work, uh, you're going to be basically more efficient with your digestive processes. As we said, like the example of contracting the gallbladder, for example, um, and all of those different processes within the, the digestive system are governed by you, uh, by the parasympathetic nervous system and the, the enteric nervous system. It's a separate thing. But, but yeah, basically, if you think about like, what would we want going on when we're in that rest and digest, relaxed state, we'd want things like the effective digestion of food. We wouldn't want our heart to be beating super fast. So as a result, um, your heart is gener- your heart rate's generally going to be slower. And uh, when you're in a parasympathetic state, when you're in a sympathetic state, it's going to be contracting really hard and really fast. Okay. So it's kind of a, a relatively basic thing. When you think about the types of situations you might be in, if you're running from someone or something, uh, you want that stress response. And as a result, you want uh, blood to be diverted to areas that it's needed, for example. So that's why the sympathetic nervous system plays a role in diverting blood to the coronary um, vessels in your heart. So making, making sure the heart has enough blood, it's contracting hard. You generally get an increase in, in blood flow to skeletal muscles and away from the internal organs. So basically you're able to uh, make sure that you have enough fuel available to do work and you're getting oxygen to those muscles, but you don't necessarily need it in the gut um, at that point in time. That's why, for example, uh, or, or it's one of the reasons why if you're always in a really stressed state, you might find yourself having some digestive complaints at times because the gut isn't able to do its job properly. Um, and it also has, you know, metabolic effects, which become relevant, especially in this discussion as it relates to exercise. Because when you're in a sympathetic state, you're basically in a state where you want to make as much fuel available as possible. And that's great during exercise. It's not so great for general metabolic health. Okay. So if you're constantly releasing more free fatty acids into the blood, you know, you're going to be in a, a more insulin resistant state, then um, you're constantly releasing more glucose, you've got higher levels of blood glucose, those things are great during exercise, not so great um, for health in general. Um, whereas when you're in a parasympathetic state, that's basically where we're going to be recovering those systems. So storing things away where they need to be um, storing away muscle glycogen, for example, we're not going to be releasing it all out into the blood. Um, we don't have as much uh, breakdown of, of muscle proteins, we're going to be able to divert our energy towards restoring um, your muscle, repairing your muscle and building new muscle. And that's basically the premise as to why people would care about this in the first place. The idea being that when you're in, I should probably take a step back, basically the heart rate variability, how that relates to that. If you're in a more sympathetic state, um, that basically reduces the amount of variability between heart, heartbeats. So as the sympathetic nervous system kicks in, speeds up your heart rate, you know, makes it beat stronger, it also makes it beat more consistently. Okay, so you're going to have less 
um, variation from one heartbeat to the other in terms of the time interval between those heartbeats. And for those who may have seen it before, if you've ever seen like an, an electrocardiogram, an ECG tracing, you like, you'll generally see them in, in the movies and stuff. You know, it's, it's basically that little heart rate tracing where there's like a straight line and then there's a small dip down, big dip up, small dip down, um, that kind of thing. Okay. You don't need to worry about the te- technicalities of that, but basically what you're looking at is the variation between the peak of the QRS wave. So it's called an, an OR, um, basically just the OR point of the ECG. You're looking at the, the time difference between that one and the next one. Okay. So if you've got those two peaks, you want to see the time that is between those two beats. So the interbeat interval. And then what you can do is see how does that vary over time? So for example, is it 0.4 milliseconds and then 0.6 milliseconds and then 0.3 milliseconds, that variation that you've got that reduces in a sympathetic state and it increases in a more parasympathetic state. Okay. So basically the more kind of relaxed and chill and recovered you are, um, the more your heart's going to be uh, varying. And, and that's kind of something that, that mightn't immediately seem intuitive, but basically what you've got there is a system that's, you know, it's variable, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a bit more random. It's not completely consistent. And that's kind of something that you see in, in physiology in general is that like a system that has more variation to it and that's more capable of responding to variation and randomness, that's generally a good sign of health. Um, that's like, that's something that's probably not talked about a lot, but if you think about like human movement, for example, if you have a greater capacity to, um, move to, to do a certain movement in, let's say a thousand different ways, then you're more robust because you don't just have one fixed way of doing that movement. And that's actually something you see in athletes, for example, in athletes, what you see is that they're able to perform a given task. So an external task, like, like let's say something like, uh, hitting a, a tennis ball, right performing a serve they're able to do that with multiple different ways of uh, creating that end point of that movement so it could be that right they've got 70 percent by like this isn't how it actually works but it's like right they can do it with 70 percent biceps or 65 percent biceps or 80 percent biceps because they're able to coordinate all these things in a really complex manner over and over and over again and that means then that if they're getting if one muscle gets particularly fatigued that's fine they've got the capacity elsewhere so it's basically the the capacity of a system to deal with randomness deal with um, chaos to some degree, you can say. Um, and that's just generally a good sign of health. So, so that goes far beyond that. But, but it oh, also really- I have two analogies for this. Go ahead. Because it's really easy to do. Um, I always think, again, like with, with that, the, the analogy of, like if you only know one way, you have to be very systematized with it. Exactly, like, yeah. Do this, do this, do this. If my inputs are like this, then this, then this, then this. You know, like say, I don't know, you're taking apart a um, computer or a machine or whatever. And you're like, I, this is the, I've only ever done this a few times. Like I'm very like, I, I, I need, I have a process. It's like this, then this, then this, then this, because you know, you're not, you're not fully, uh, you don't understand the overall thing very well, but you can get the job done. Right. Yeah. Whereas like a master crafts person goes in there is like, I don't actually need the order to do this. I can do this in any way. I can do, do this. And then the thing that you do number five, I do that number two, because I can do this and then I can do this. Like they know different pathways around, and how to go around this because they're a master and you can look at the two different in terms of just, you know, it's, it's not obviously, you know, a perfect analogy, but if you look at the two different individuals, like you can see that the, the person is like, Oh, I have to do this. And then this, and then this, they, they seem more stressed, you know, whereas the master crafts person is like, I can do this relaxed with my eyes closed. It doesn't really matter. Like it, it's easy. You know, I, 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 there's a thousand different ways. If something goes wrong, it's not even an issue because I've seen it before. I can respond to that. 
it's fine, you know? So that's the way I kind of think of those two things. But then in terms of how you look at the actual numbers, I always think of like, if you were like marching to war or something, you're going to have like just back in the day, you know, like a drummer, you know, where it's like, you want to have the drum beat really steady to get the, the cadence of the march, right? You know, so the, the beat is steady, 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 right? Whereas if you're thinking about the, the more relaxed um, thing, I always think of like a beach community and they're in charge of, you know, making your uh, heart beat. They're kind of like, oh shit, yeah, actually we should make the heart beat now, you know, then they beat and it's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, well, we should do that again. There's no real like consistent rhythm to it, you know? Whereas when you're marching to war, you're stressed out. You're like, do, 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 do. You need the, the beat to, to, to be consistent, to keep everyone going towards the same goal it's more stress it's more you know go for this whereas in the opposite case it's like yeah, we'll relax we'll, we'll beat when when we want to beat you know it doesn't matter if it's five seconds late or 10 seconds late or whatever it's, we'll, we'll get it done but you know there's there's more variation more randomness yeah 100 percent. so i mean like what i would take away from that is is just a general understanding that um having the capacity to just have more ways of doing things, more variation within the system is generally um, a pretty good thing uh, for health. You know, an example, another example would be something like metabolic health. If you're someone who's like, I can eat whatever I want. It doesn't matter about the macronutrient composition or the type of food and my blood glucose and triglycerides, they're just fine. My system deals with it. It packages everything away just fine then like you're, you're clearly in a, a good state of metabolic health because you're able to just put everything away, package it all away, and it's just no problem for you. Whereas someone else who maybe they might be a type, they might have type 2 diabetes, for example, they might actually have to micromanage exactly how um, they set up their meals in order to get the exact same um, response that you have. So while you both might have, you know, the same um, blood glucose, maybe um, at a given point in time, person one is able to do so in a more just random, just casual manner. They're just able to eat whatever they want. The other person requires micromanagement. So yeah, in general, basically variation, randomness, um, capacity to adapt to randomness, importantly, um, is just a good thing for health in general. So that brings us to the kind of heart rate variability discussion. And basically, when you are, uh, it, it's a, this is a marker of health as well as something that you'd be interested in from a training perspective. So people who are, you know, generally have better cardiovascular health are going to have higher um, or greater heart rate variability, meaning they'll have more variation between heartbeats. So they're not necessarily in that uh, sympathetic state, you know, their parasympathetic nervous system, that vagal input is able to come in and just kind of relax things down, you know? Um, and it's also just creating that variation. It's kind of saying to the system, look, it's okay. We don't need to be like really rigid on this. Let's just chill out. We're doing just fine. We're in a good state of health. Whereas the person who maybe has poorer health, um, they might be in a position where um, they're in that more sympathetic dominant state in terms of the heart rate. And they're kind of, like, it's being micromanaged. It's saying, look, we, we have to keep beating this. We have to keep beating this. We have to keep on track with this. So it's, it's a basically in a more stressed state overall. Um, and in general, what you see is that, that it, in terms of like large kind of epidemiological studies, you do see that um, people who have lower heart rate variability um, they, they are more likely to uh, have cardiovascular disease um, and higher levels of mortality. Um, the exception to that being 
because I like, I mean, sometimes people think that higher heart rate variability, having a mo- more variability is always a good thing. That's not always the case because in some cases you can have um, conduction abnormalities in the heart or established cardiovascular disease that would give you an abnormal heart rate already and an abnormal heart rate variability. And that's not necessarily a state of health. That's right. something that can give you a stroke. Yeah. <laughs> that's something that give you a, a stroke and kill you, you know? Um, so yeah, you do have to be mindful of the context for sure. And it's definitely not just a case of higher, better, lower, worse. Um, and, and that also comes back to the training discussion, but in terms of health itself, like it is something that is, it's not something you're going to see used in like, routine clinical practice like you're not going to go to your gp and they're, they're going to assess your heart rate variability um but it is something that you do see correlated uh with health for sure and it's something that can to some degree or has been associated with or increases risk of rather uh your first cardiovascular event so if you take a population uh, this has been done if you look at a population without um established cardiovascular disease the, those who have lower heart rate variability um, are more likely to have a first cardiovascular event versus those who have higher heart rate variability. And obviously, that's just looking at the state of someone's physiology. And that is something that could have been impacted by various you know, lifestyle choices, whether that be uh, smoking, alcohol, uh, the, you know, having an active lifestyle, your nutrition habits, your body weight, et cetera. Um, and I suppose like we did bring, bring up some of this already in terms of when we were discussing blood pressure, for example, we said that uh, the sympathetic nervous system uh, overactivity is something that's kind of associated with uh, hypertension and high blood pressure. So you can see how there might be associations here between um, adverse cardiovascular health states uh, and lower heart rate variability by virtue of that kind of sympathetic nervous system activity, just driving that heart to, to vary uh, less. So, so yeah, that'd be my, my kind of introduction to, to the basics of heart rate variability anyway. The only thing I would just add is just we have obviously a load of different metrics that we can track. That doesn't mean you need to track them, right? Um, So we have, like, if we just look from the heart perspective, we're just so, we're just really caring. This series is very like cardiovascular stuff. So we have like resting heart rate. We talked about, we talked about that. You know, we have blood pressure, we have blood lipids. You know, there's a few different measurements, metrics that we could be like, these are the things that I want to pay attention to. And you can go, oh, HRV seems to be something as well. First of all, we go, what's HRV telling us? And we're like, okay, it's telling us some, it's giving us a, a snapshot of the, the nervous system, we'll say, you know, because you can kind of miss that with the, the resting heart rate and stuff. Like obviously they are somewhat proxy measures, you know, like you're not going to have, a really low resting heart rate generally if you are you know stressed out of your mind and in a very like sympathetic state you know you're, it, it, that's not going to happen generally speaking you know and um, so we can be like oh we want to have a snapshot into the the nervous system input you know what's going on with the nervous system so we'll, we'll use hrv right but that doesn't mean that like you don't have to measure hrv like it's not it's not something that's going to be like this is the make or break of health or this is the make or break of my training or anything like that. You know, it can be nice to layer on, you know, when we want further context or we want more data. However, we need to interpret that HRV number 
in the context of what we're trying to do, who we are, our genetics, you know, what, what are the goals, all that kind of stuff. Because like I was saying, like people can be like, oh, higher is always better, but there's certain circumstances just health wise, well, where that's not the case, but also, you know, training wise, where that's not the case. Like you might be uh, an athlete that wants to be in a more uh, sympathetic state. You know, you want to have a, a lower heart rate, variability you know you want to be that little bit more stressed and on edge if you will and versus someone that's more relaxed you know like there's certain circumstances like especially in the strength sports you'll see that we're having a relatively lower hrv score is potentially better than having a higher hrv score now it's still individual specific you know it's not to say that oh you have a hrv score of 80 on whatever app you're using or whatever and you know you're a powerlifter so sorry you're not going to make it the average hrv for a powerlifter is 60 sorry goodbye like that's not the case like there's still individual variation within this and ultimately what i would caveat the entire discussion of this uh hrv stuff is it's all individual specific in terms of like when we're talking about improving your hrv or you know the sympathetic input of it, the parasympathetic, the, the relaxation, all that kind of stuff. Like it all comes back to what you as an individual are using that metric for, but also your goals, the context of you, your genetics, you know, like if we're talking about improving your HRV score, like if you're at 60, getting it up to 65 is an improvement, you know? So if you're trying to use it as a metric for health, that's great. You don't need to look at these numbers and be like, oh, I say 90 is where you should be for, for health. You know, it's like that might be unrealistic for all the other stuff that you have going on. And you can spend a decade trying to get your HRV score to 90. And, you know, you quit your job because it's too stressful. You divorce, <laughs> divorce your wife and get, you know, just ignore your kids because it's too stressful. You know, like you can do all of these things that it's like, oh, yeah, like I'm just trying to get my HRV score up but that's not necessarily conducive to the life that you want to, to lead, you know? So we have to take the context of what's going on and look at that measurement as an individual metric that is at best a proxy metric for the, the, the nervous system. You know, it's not telling you the exact nervous system input. It's not being like, like we were saying earlier on, it's not like a, an on off switch, which your parasympathetic sympathetic and then sympathetic nervous system. It's not like, it's not giving you a, oh, right now we're sympathetic. Right now we're parasympathetic. It's not giving you that, you know? So it's a, it's a proxy for where we, we are. And then you'll get also this like readiness or preparedness for exercise. A lot of apps use that as well. And again, that's related to your baseline, not necessarily other, like a, a, a standard. It's like, oh, normally you're here and you're above now. So you're more prepared for activity, you know? And so it's, it's based on your baseline. So ultimately what I'm saying is you need to look at this at a very individual and context specific, you know, point. You agree, Gary? I do. Yeah. No, I just actually wanted to show something for the people who are lucky enough to watch our videos um, rather than just like doing the podcast uh, on one second. I just happen to have this, uh, 
this ECG on the wall. So I just may as well like for the video. Look, if you look at this, it actually is it actually is quite cool because this is interesting because this is um this is an ECG of of someone with uh, atrial fibrillation and basically that's a, a classically like ir- just irregular heartbeat basically. Um, so that shows someone like with really high heart rate variability that you certainly do not want. But basically, what you can see here is that um if you look at the if you look at the, the heartbeats, like you, what you can see uh, in these ones in particular, you can see that they vary quite a bit. So it's like they don't all look the same. And if you were to count the number of boxes between like the, the spike there and the spike there, it actually varies between each heartbeat as you move across. And as you can see, there's differences in height and everything. So that's just something that happened to be there. It wasn't planned for the podcast. But basically, like that's an example of, 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 of a state of ill health where heart variability is going to be increased. Um, so if you were to look at, you know, research on this topic, it's something that you do have to account for. And it's also the reason that you don't just want to look uh, across your clients, let's say, because um, this is actually something that someone in our group asked a while ago um, is, you know, if, if we've got two different people and one of them has heart rate variability of of 70, let's say, um, in the way that it's measured. Um, and then another person has a heart variability of 80. Does that mean that they're fitter or healthier? And it's like, not necessarily, okay? Because there, like you said, there's a lot of extra things uh, that go into determining one's heart rate variability. And in some cases, it can be pathological. And in addition to that, in some cases, it can be associated with you having done too much training. So that's something that's that's relevant to the training discussion. But it's, it's, it's sort it, this sort of brings in a lot of nuance to the discussion when it comes to using heart rate variability to assess your training response. Because what you see is that in someone who, let's say they've been doing a tough training for a few weeks, in general, you'll see that their heart rate variability is going to decrease. Okay. And that's something you would expect. They're in a more stressed re- state. They're not really recovered very well. Um, but the problem is that as that uh, continues, then what you tend to see is that people, as people move along the kind of uh, functional overreaching to overtraining spectrum, so we basically have this this spectrum of like pushing yourself a bit over the line so you get good training adaptations, and to, at the extreme of the spectrum, doing so much that you're now in a state of illness, effectively. Um, as you move along that, you can actually get increased heart rate variability as well. So you can actually, it, it looks like you're in a state of recovery, but if you were to actually ask that person how they're feeling or how they're performing, they'd be like, awful, <laughs> not good at all. So what you have to realize here is that this, this is something that you, you cannot use in isolation. Okay. So if you are going to use it, you cannot use it in isolation. Okay. So what I would say to you is that if you're thinking of using something like heart rate variability, you're thinking, oh, this seems interesting because people love things that are like, they can track their physiology. Like people love that. Um, so if you're thinking like, oh, that seems real interesting to me, just realize that you actually have to put it into the context of the overall, like one, how you're feeling in general. So other markers of how you're feeling. So for example, it could be your perceived well-being. So a score out of 10, you know, how do you actually feel today? You know, when you woke up this morning, how did you feel? Um, and if it's, if it's a three out of 10, you don't need to check your heart variability to know that you feel like shit. You know, so you probably know already, all right, I'm not in a, a great place to do a really hard training session today. You don't necessarily need your heart rate variability to, to tell you that um, in that case. Similarly, you are on the other hand, rather, it could be the case that you actually want to feel poor. Like if you've done, let's say a, an overreaching training cycle, for example, like if you're like an, an athlete in uh, the competition preparation and you're doing really hard training, you want your heart rate variability to be, 
to be down because that tells you that you're actually reaching the level of training stress that is required for you to get subsequent adaptations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, so, that's the limitation of some of the research on this topic when it comes to uh, applied training practices, because what you do sometimes is that um, they'll like have training interventions, let's say, and this is only some, some studies, like you'll have training interventions. And at the end of the training intervention, which was designed for overreaching, like it was designed to be really, really challenging. They'll have suppressed heart rate variability. So basically they're in a more stressed state. They're not as recovered. And then they'll do a performance assessment and then they'll say, Oh, performance was decreased. And that was, you know, associated with lower heart rate variability. So uh, basically you should try to use weight till you have higher heart rate variability um, or, or not use, not keep training when you have low heart rate variability. Whereas it kind of misses the point in some sense, because the function of an overtraining or overreaching training cycle like that and an overload you're, where you're actually trying to overload the system. The goal at the end of that would be to, first of all, at the right at the end of the training cycle, you expect fatigue to be masking fitness. So you expect there to be a decrement of performance because that's normal. But then what you'd expect to happen, and this is generally the case if you're, let's say, a powerlifter, you have like a peak week. So you have a week um, or 10 days or two weeks in some cases between your last hard training session um, and your actual competition. And in that time, one, heart rate variability is going to recover. Um, and two, you're expecting the kind of super compensation, you could say, is you're expecting the the adaptations from the previous training cycle to start manifesting. So you're now expecting your, yourself to be in a position at the end of that recovery period where your performance is actually increased now. So if you were to focus solely in on the heart rate variability and not realize the goal of the training cycle, um, where you're assessing performance, so is it directly after the training intervention or is it two weeks later or a week later, then you're not really going to get a good idea um, or, or you're not going to be able to interpret it effectively and, and apply it effectively. So, so yeah, I suppose it's just important to understand some of those details um, and understand, basically understand why you're using it. You know, that's something that's, that's very basic to, to personal training, to physiotherapy, to medicine, whatever. If you're assessing something, you're doing some sort of assessment, know why you're doing it and how it will influence your decisions. Because if you're just measuring HRV, just for the sake of it, and you're, you don't have a framework for how it's going to influence subsequent decision-making, then you're kind of just adding another thing that in a personal training context, I don't necessarily want to add to the burden of what my clients have to do because I've done this in the past. Like I've had clients track heart rate variability, but I just found that it wasn't influencing decision-making all that much. And obviously there's a difference between a Tour de France cyclist and you know, someone who's just trying to gain a bit of muscle and lose a bit of fat. Um, and obviously the application differs then too, because if you're a Tour de France cyclist, you're probably undergoing a lot of, a lot of testing, a lot of very specific decision-making in terms of nutrition and training planning and RPE, et cetera, um, that can actually affect your performance immediately. Whereas that's not necessarily the case for someone who's casually going to the gym, trying to make some gains, you know? Yeah. Like I think it's really important to layer on the context of it. Like you've been saying, cause there are, I could, you can look at this and be like, oh, well, let's interpret it this way or this way or whatever. But there's some very clear indications where, you know, having a higher HRV score would be you know, detrimental. Like obviously you've said the, the pathological one there a second ago, but just even using your example there of the power lifter, you know, if we're saying you've done an overreaching or overtraining or whatever you want to call it, functional overreaching block of training, and then you want to let some of that fatigue, you know, die off, drop off before you actually compete. You know, if you're 
looking at that and you're like, oh, we're going to wait until our HRV is up at this level and before we, we actually do a, a, a max out set or, you know, go to competition or whatever, like you can be, you can miss that window of opportunity and you can actually have started detraining because, yep. you know, you're, now your HRV is, you're more recovered, but you've over recovered, you know, like you've, you've actually just dropped off some of those adaptations because you've just, you know, recovered more than you needed to, you know, it's not like you've added to what you're trying to, to achieve, especially in the strength context, it's very easy to see, but also you can see it in the context of, you might be just an individual, just casually tracking your HRV and be like, Oh, today is a, a really good HRV day. You know, I'm, I'm up higher than, than normal. And then you get to the gym, you go to train, you're like, I actually don't really have any drive or, you know, real motivation to, to train, you know, I'm not able to like switch it on, turn on that gear, you know, or go up a gear to like really push training because you're in a more relaxed state, you know, like that's also can happen. Now, obviously, you know, this is why people take like caffeine and, you know, get, watch some fucking motivational video or, you know, I don't know, listen to music or whatever. It allows you to like, you know, kick up the gear, get a little bit of stress hormones going on. But if we just look at it from a pure HRV point of view, like a lower or a, sorry, a higher score might be detrimental to performance on that day because you're just, I don't like, I feel great, but I'm just, I'm, not really ready to go beast mode you know i'm not like i don't want to go in and just fucking hammer it in the gym you know uh, whereas you might be like oh i woke up with a score of 60 and my usual is 80 you know and you're like man i actually feel great i'm fucking hyped to go to the gym you hit like a load of pors you know because you're in that more stressed out state which can be beneficial for performance especially in the shorter duration stuff you know so we really need to keep the context in mind you know and again we need to definitely keep in the context in mind in terms of you know what might be beneficial for health isn't necessarily the same as what might be beneficial for performance you know you might be like oh well these athletes have super high hrv scores or super low or whatever it is you're like oh yeah but they actually all die at 50 from heart disease and you're you're using hrv for uh, health, you know, it's like, like, okay, maybe don't use that population then, you know, to, to be your comparison, right? So, with all of that out of the way, Gary, that's a huge introduction. Let's just actually just get into the kind of application. Like, obviously, you touched on a few few little bits there, but yeah, where like in a training context or a personal training or coaching context, like, are you using HRV? Where are you using it? How are you interpreting it? And then what training stuff influences our HRV score? Um, and then maybe we'll, we'll touch on more lifestyle stuff like, you know, stress management after that. Yeah. So I'll start this by just looking at this in a kind of a, a more divergent manner. So endurance versus resistance training, because the thing with heart rate variability is that it's classically been used in endurance sports. Um, and they're obviously sports that people will typically associate with being more cardiovascular based. So from the outset, it's like, okay, I can kind of see why it might be applicable in those contexts. And what you tend to see is that uh, early on, at least, as someone improves their fit, because there, there's a certain, um, like there, there's a number of different ways you can look at HRV as it relates to fitness. So early on, as someone increases their fitness, 
they get an increase in HRV. So that's what people generally talk about when they say like, oh, I want to cre- increase my heart rate variability as a goal, you know? So that can be an early on like fitness goal. But what you're not going to see is that if someone is already a well-trained endurance athlete, that they can now assess their fitness based on changes in heart rate variability, because it's not just going to keep increasing, you know, you eventually just kind of saturate that. Um, and thereafter, you're not going to keep getting increases in heart rate variability. So early on for someone, let's say you've got a new client um, and they're an endurance athlete um, or they want to be an endurance athlete, they're untrained. As they increase their fitness, they improve their 5K times, 10K times, whatever, they're a cyclist, they're a swimmer. Yeah, their heart rate variability is going to increase. So in that case, it's like over time, there's going to be an increase in heart rate variability. Um, and that's that's something that you'd look at on kind of a, an average basis. So in the endurance training research, that's generally how you'll see it used as like a rolling uh, a seven-day average. Um, so rather than looking at an, any one given morning and saying, oh, this is what I'm going to use to influence my training decisions or or assess my current level of heart rate variability, you're looking at kind of like a seven day average. So if you were to look at that over the course of someone who's just began um, endurance training or cardiovascular training to improve the cardiorespiratory fitness, their heart rate variability will increase over time up to a point. Okay. So that's kind of the first, like, that's the, that's a finding that's like, yeah, cool. That's fine. But that's not something we're using to influence training decisions. It's just something that improves, you know, and it's well known that, you know, as you increase your fitness and the parasympathetic modulation of heart rate um, or the parasympathetic input on the heart is increased. Okay. As you, as you get fitter, but again, it's not something that just keeps on increasing indefinitely. Okay. So where it becomes a little bit more nuanced is when you begin to use this as an acute kind of decision-making process. So as we said earlier, um, as you begin to get in, as you're fatigued, if you're fatigued from training and you're in a state of under recovery, so let's say the day after a really hard training session, your heart rate variability is generally going to be decreased. Okay. So you're in a more stressed out state. So the premise there for using that as a reason for, or, or as a means of guiding training decisions would be, let's say if we've got an endurance athlete um, and they've had four weeks of training done and we saw their heart, heart rate variability was, it was kind of fine weeks one and two, weeks three and four, it dipped hard. Um, and now at the end of that fourth week, we're seeing, right, the seven day average of heart rate variability is quite low. Um, it's not where we wanted to be at this point in the training cycle and that we didn't want the person to be that fatigued. Um, and we're also seeing subjective markers of fatigue like uh, session RPE. So how hard the, the sessions are for the cyclist, let's say, um, and how fatigued they're feeling, how stressed they're feeling in general. If we're seeing those markers kind of come together, then we're saying, okay, that seven day rolling average of heart rate variability in that case could inform us that it might be worth our while to uh, include a lighter week of training or low intensity training sessions uh, to allow heart rate variability to increase again, but more importantly, to allow the overall system to recover, to return to homeostasis. So basically like that's how it's kind of used in the in endurance training research. Sometimes you'll have uh, more specific study designs where um, it might be the case that you don't do your next training session until your heart rate variability is above a certain level, for example. And there's, there's multiple different ways that that can be applied in the endurance training context. And it does seem like um, when it's brought into the picture, it does improve um, endurance training outcomes versus like fixed training protocols. Um, But to be honest, I think you could also just make the case that having like, it's not specific to heart rate variability, but it's also just the case that you're including some degree of auto-regulation. So for example, giving the person the opportunity 
do the harder, their harder sessions when they feel better. That's a very simple way of trying to put this into practice. So like one of the ways that I do that with some clients uh, who are, have more maybe endurance training type goals is I'll say like, regardless of whether or not they're training heart rate, ver- tracking heart rate variability, I might say, right, we've got this interval run. This is a really hard run. Like you're going to find this really challenging. This is your moderate run. Um, this is kind of okay. It's a fine tempo for you. I know it's manageable. And then this is your longer, slow run. And yeah, that's fine too. That's like, that's not a big deal to you. It's just a case of putting in the time. Then we might say, right, I want you to do that interval session, that really hard running session that's re- going to require the most of you on the day of the week that you're feeling best, that you know you have the least on, you're going to be least stressed and when you can get good sleep the night before. So that's just an example of auto-regulation and practice without having to make it um, too specific because I think sometimes the problem can uh, problems can come about when you're saying wait till your heart rate variability is above this level to do this training session and then if it doesn't happen on that week like we don't know like did we measure it poorly was there some difference in how the person slept or you know there's there's lots of different things that can move the needle there and the the problem there would be that the person could then miss out on valuable training sessions that may have actually benefited them um so that's 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 one of the risks with using heart rate variability is that you, if you were, if you're too rigid with it, um, like for example, in some of the apps like Elite HRV, it'll give you a readiness score and it'll say, oh, you know, you're not recovered today. And if you're feeling good and you're feeling prepared for the session, it's probably not a great idea to just say, oh, I'm not going to do it just because I don't feel great, you know. Um, so basically, what I'm saying there is, in the endurance training context, at least, we do have evidence to support um, efficacy. Um, so it does seem to improve outcomes, but I think there's also just the case of why don't you start a bit more proximally by saying, let's introduce a looser form of auto-regulation by asking the person how they feel, how their previous session was, and thinking about things like sleep and stress, et cetera, um, before we get like real nitty gritty with ha- the person having to track their heart rate variability every day. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd be saying in terms of the endurance context. There's evidence there. It can be useful. It depends on context, and I also want to consider um, other variables within that. From a resistance, just, just go ahead, on, yeah. on to resistance, even though this does apply to that, I will just forget it though. Uh, <laughs> um, like just looking at it from like an anecdotal perspective, like myself, like I've tested this kind of stuff on myself, and um, I've discussed it before. But my training basically is like two days on, one day off, two days on, two days off, right? And the 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 on days I'm doing resistance training and you know conditioning training in the gym and then later in the evening i'm doing brazilian jiu-jitsu right so i'm training twice per day on all of those days right that i train right then i have three full days off now when i look at my hrv score or i look at my readiness score like my watch gives me one and all that kind of stuff i know it'll tell me on that day three that i'm ready to go right even though i've had two hard training sessions in between right or, or previous to that, right? So I could look at that and purely objectively go, okay, yeah, this, it says I'm ready to go. I feel, I feel good, you know, I, why wouldn't I train, right? However, I know consistently when I do train with that schedule anyway, uh, three days in a row, the next two, it takes me two or three days to recover from that, right? So even though the score is telling me I'm ready to go, it, it, that would lead me to being in a position where I feel overtrained and my score for the next three days is below, you know, it's, it's lowered down. Right. So 
for me, I know I can go hard on two days, take a day off um, um, proactively, you know, even though I'm like, yeah, all my metrics are telling me go for it, you know, um, because I know from having just, you know, interpreted it myself that if I did that, then the next few days are going to be awful. So over the training week, I'm not actually getting a good training stimulus because I train hard two days, I train hard three days, and now the rest of the week is shit because I, I'm I'm overtrained, if you will. You know, like I feel I, I feel like I'm not motivated. I um, don't want to do the training sessions and all that kind of stuff. You know, so what I'm saying is, even though the data can be telling you this is a great day to train, that doesn't mean that it is a great day to train in the context of what you're actually trying to achieve over that training block, over that training week. But also, you can have a say this is a bad day to train and the same thing can happen. It can be like, okay, well, in the context of my week, you know, it, it makes sense to, to train here because I have four days off now or whatever it is that you're like, that's, I'm going to be recovered, even though it says that this is going to be a bad day to train. It's like, well, in the context of my week, it's irrelevant, you know? So what I'm saying is you have to layer on like the actual goals, the, the context of the individual, all the other stuff that's going on and, actually make it applicable to the the the, the training program itself yeah 100 percent. and also i think like one of the things to note is that like like for example one of the the papers that i pulled up in in kind of like just just reading around this topic was was a, a paper from last year that's on like right daily fatigue recovery balance monitoring with heart rate variability in well-trained female cyclists in the tour de france circuit okay i'm not a tour de france cyclist my primary stressors in life are not training. Like if anything, I get really excited about training and it's something I feel way better after doing. Okay. That's the same for a lot of people listening to this podcast. And I think that's the thing to really get here is that for athletes, like if you're an endurance athlete, let's say, and that is like your job, <laughs> um, or like in some cases, even people who aren't professional athletes, they'll actually choose their job in such a way that it allows them to do their sports. So it's a lower stressor. It has particular hours, et cetera. Whereas for many of us, like we're almost like choosing our activities uh, in, in a secondary sense. So like we've got our jobs, like we've got our careers, like that's the thing we're focused on. And like, if, if you can make training sessions and the times that they're on, it's like, yeah, I'll do that outside of work hours. Like that, that's a secondary stressor. It's Basically definitely what you're saying is people are prioritizing bank over <laughs> Which yes like a, a pretty poor trade-off if you're asking me but all right <laughs> yeah i'm in <laughs> um but yeah like so like the thing to understand there is that like there's a distinct difference there between the way that this is applied in some studies in endurance athletes and the the types of clients that the vast majority of us work with in the kind of personal training world okay um, and even the even people who are into like weight training and gaining muscle it's like yeah but it's still not your main thing it's still not the main thing you're focused on so i think the risk there would be that if you're focused solely on tracking heart rate variability and waiting for the perfect moment to train and everything like if i'm like in the middle of the semester let's say and i've got placement and you know you're trying to do like your study in the evening or you've got some essays due and then you've got some triage work and then i'm like will i go to brazilian jiu-jitsu today no actually my heart rate variability was actually too low it's like of course of course it was you're stressed as shit but that doesn't mean you shouldn't train like in some cases it might if you've accumulated like oh you've done eight workouts this week already cool you know no problem but i mean if you're 
very stressed, your heart rate variability is down and you haven't been training for five days, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't train because the whole point is that it's, although it's, it's modulated by training stress, it's also modulated by other stressors and your, your general state of health. So you could be fooled into thinking that uh, your thing that improves. That's one of the reasons it's just a bit of a, it's a messy thing to use in the real world, especially with people who have a lot of other stressors going on. Um, so yeah, just, just know why you're using it, how you're going to interpret it and how it's actually influencing your decisions because you could implement it with a client and it could be the case that you're four weeks in and you notice that they've only gotten two sessions a week in every week because you've given them a threshold of heart rate variability that they just haven't really hit any morning. And then you have to ask yourself, what's the trade-off of not training? Because like not training is not benign. Like if it's a deliberate day off for recovery from too much training, that's very different to not training enough in the first place, you know? 100%, right. So basically know why, know why you're using HRV. Like you, the, you should be able to layer the context on. If you're not able to layer the context on, don't use it. Yeah, and, and just a note on... on well, like, unless you're just planning to go into it, will I discuss resistance training briefly? Go just for it. I'm it's just a little bit say, different. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, like, how does training influence this in terms of what are we going to see if we're doing, like, we just touched on the cardio stuff, the aerobic, anaerobic, even whatever. Um, how, how are our training decisions actually going to influence our HRV? Yeah, so, I mean... In- in terms of like resistance training, I, think, I actually think I'm not entirely sure, but like I'm pretty sure there's like only one study that has attempted to individualize training practices um, in resistance training based on heart rate variability. Um, and like the findings weren't fantastic, although to be fair, it's not really the type of, it wasn't designed in such a way that would answer the questions in the way that we would in the real world. So basically like the only study that exists, it's in untrained um, untrained, uh, young, I think 22 year old males or something. Um, and they're doing a training intervention. And basically the goal is to get in 20 total training sessions and in the fixed, in the fixed training groups. So standard traditional training, they're going to get that done over the course of seven weeks. Okay. So that's just your fixed training program. And in the individualized training group, basically what they said is, uh, right, you're going to assess your heart rate variability every, every, um, I think it was 24 hours, yeah, every 24 hours. And then once it comes back to baseline, you can train again. So anytime the heart rate variability came back to baseline, they did another session, okay? So they ended up doing their 20 sessions in just five weeks as opposed to doing the 20 sessions over seven weeks. So they had an overall higher training frequency um, and hence uh, more volume in a shorter period of time. Um, But like... I mean, when I read that study initially, I was like, yeah, but like no one really applies it like that in the real world. Like, I'm not going to say to my clients, <laughs> do as many sessions as you can <laughs> once you see this number of HRV, you know? And I, I think that's an especially messy target when you've got uh, untrained individuals. Um, but like in that, in that study, what you did see was that like the hypertrophy outcomes were basically the same at the end, which might be what you'd expect when someone does a particular amount of training volume. But what you also saw was that the traditional training group who spent seven weeks doing the same amount of sessions, they actually gained more strength um, when reassessed. So, I mean, you could make the case there that, you know, they had more recovery time between sessions. They, you know, had more time to solidify strength gains, etc. cetera. Um, so maybe that made a difference in their outcomes. But I think that's kind of counter and like that's counter to what 
the problems me and you would generally be talking about as we have in this podcast, because generally people don't use HRV to train more. <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm going to do more sessions. It's generally a case of probably doing less. Um, so I think that's a different question. But in general, what resistance training, I think what you have to understand is that like resistance training is it's not re it's not really an energy intensive process and it's not something that's purely dependent on like cardiovascular performance so immediately from the outset as we said earlier when looking at endurance performance i'd expect something like heart rate variability um to probably be more related to performance because it's giving insight into the state of the cardiovascular system but it's also giving insight into like as we said previously um, if heart rate variability is low and someone's in a more like stressed out state, it's clear that they're under under recovered. Then we can infer from that that they're potentially in a state where um, they're not going to be able to um, oxidize as much uh, fat for fuel, for example, because basically the higher your heart rate is, the more stressed out the system is, um, the more glucose you end up uh, using for fuel um, and the less glycogen they will have synthesized and fuel they will have stored away. Because as we said earlier, in the more stressed sympathetic state, you tend to uh, be in a state where you're liberating more fuel as opposed to storing it. So, those things are more related to endurance performance. Um, because obviously, if you're not using uh, fuels that are more sustainable, you know, and you're not using or you're not storing away energy properly, then you might expect that your performance in an event that's going to be more determined by fuel availability um, and efficiency of the cardiovascular system, for example, that that will be compromised. Whereas with resistance training, like it's a little bit more loose because like basically what we're saying is that carry our HRV is probably related in, in, to some degree because it's giving us an insight into how stressed the system is, how recovered is the individual um, after the initial perturbation um, in HRV. But I don't think that like you're going to see that. Like we obviously don't have that much research on the topic, but my assumption would be that even if we, even as we do develop a bigger body of evidence here, I, I, I just have my doubts that it's, it's as useful for um, the, the resistance training context. So for someone who is focused a little bit more on resistance training, um, strength, like whether that be strength or hypertrophy based, again, I think it's something that you could potentially think about using, but I'd be more concerned about doing that within the context of other things like how you're feeling, uh, how your your how many reps you're getting in. You know, what's your what's your RPE per set? Are you seeing your strength uh, really drop off and stuff? Um, because one of the interesting things about hypertrophy is that, like, it seems to be like uh, hypertrophy outcomes are basically related to training um, appropriately hard and doing it over time. You know, it's like, yeah, you need to be in a certain volume threshold, but hypertrophy outcomes aren't really dependent on like performance increases as such, you know, obviously over time they are related, but muscle growth is not like a one-to-one relationship with an increase, um, in any element of performance. Um, and so as a result, it just gets a bit messier between that relationship between HRV and something like muscle strength and muscle hypertrophy. So yeah, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it. And if I was using it, I would be, you know, trying to make sure that it's not disturbing the training parameters that we wanted to put in place too much. So if you initially plan to have someone do four sessions a week, let's say, and your HRV, let's say it's it's now making you do seven sessions or two sessions a week, then, you know, I'd be, I'd be kind of skeptical that that's actually of benefit. Um, and yeah, that, that would be my my kind of uh, interpretation of the resistance training stuff. Yeah. With the, with resistance training stuff, I actually just think it's, 
right now anyway it's too hard to interpret right interpret yeah. correctly i mean right because with the the, the cardiovascular stuff at least we have a, a bigger body of evidence for it but also as you said it's related to the heart and we're like we're, we're basically looking at heart adaptations and you know this is giving us some some idea of what's going on you know so it's a little bit easier to see with the the cardiovascular stuff especially with the more endurance stuff however as you get into that more even anaerobic stuff like if it's a, a one all-out effort like a lower hrv score could be beneficial in that case now I, I don't think it would be beneficial if you know the training sessions are going to be like repeated sprint uh, sprint efforts because obviously that becomes more aerobic in nature and you need to be more recovered in between however you will find in the research like i'm currently writing uh about sleep you know if you've been following along with our articles you're in our group you'll know that we're going through the sleep series of articles. And the one that I'm currently writing is the sleep's impact on exercise. Well, and exercise's impact on sleep. But one of the things that you see is that like, if you have a, a poor night's sleep, like they do like sleep restriction of like three hours or four hours, you know, and then they get individuals to train whatever way they were, they were training. You'll see people hit like personal records and stuff in like resistance training you know, like they'll hit a new eight rep max or five rep max or a three rep max and one rep max, you know, and you, you probably anecdotally experience this yourself. You know, you've had like a shit night's sleep and you're like, oh, today I'm due to, you know, go out and train hard and you go into the gym and, you know, you do your first set and you're like, whoa, like that was actually, was great. Right. Yeah. And they, 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 they hypothesize this is obviously related to like the catecholamines, like increasing catecholamines. And so like we'll say stress hormones. So you're a little bit more amped up, ready to go, maybe a little bit less inhibition uh, muscularly. And like you, you, the nervous system is like stressed out. Cause again, like we're, we're thinking about that. It is your sympathetic nervous system and that's your arousal nervous system. So if you're more aroused for your lift and you're like more hyped up for it, like that can be beneficial in certain circumstances. However, with the sleep stuff, you will consistently see uh, like aerobic performance and endurance performance and all of that stuff, you know, is negatively affected by even like three, four hours reduced sleep, right? Whereas the, 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 the shorter duration stuff, even like sprints and stuff, like obviously, again, if it's not repeated sprints, um, they don't seem to see as much of a performance decrement as the other stuff. Now, this is related to... Uh, how glucose uh, like you basically become fucking pre-diabetic without sleep <laughs> um, you get a, a type 2 diabetes phenotype um, uh, with, with reductions in sleep even like transiently you get different like fatty acid uh, storage and there's a lot of stuff that read the articles <laughs> um, but uh, this if you were to measure those individuals HRV like it, it's not done in these studies but if you were to measure those individuals HRV like you can pretty much expect that you know, if you reduce sleep by four hours, that's a stressor, you know, and you're, you're going to pretty much expect that you're going to be less recovered. And as a result, you know, HRV is going to be lower, right? So just thinking about that, uh, keeping that in mind, like, how do you know how hard to train or how, when to train with resistance training? If we have data that says, that would suggest, it not says, because, you know, we, we didn't actually measure the HRV, we're just making a presumption. Um, but if we have data that would indicate that potentially having a lower HRV score leads to better results in these like maximal effort, these shorter duration things, like how do you interpret that in a resistance training context? Now, resistance training, like an actual training session, is a little bit harder to uh, interpret because it is in that kind of weird place where it's not 
like it's not a one one rep max so it's not like or three rep max or whatever you know so it's not truly or just three reps in general you know it's not truly like we'll say a lactic uh in nature it's also not really anaerobic like maybe the first few sets are anaerobic but generally people are training for an hour an hour and a half even you know so as that training session goes on further and further and further like you're relying more on the aerobic system so we're going to presume then that again just using the 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 data that we have that that's going to be more negatively impacted by lower hrv scores then if we're saying that it more impacts the the aerobic stuff and especially in this sleep context here and so potentially we have to interpret that and go okay we're actually just going to reduce the the overall volume of the session we're only going to do one set of each of these exercises rather than multiple sets of them like we had planned once we see this lower hrv score you know but that might not make sense in the context of your overall training program what you're trying to achieve if you're trying to get a certain amount of volume for a session and maybe you're working with i don't know five reps in reserve and you're just trying to accumulate volume over time you know like it's really hard to interpret the the hrv score itself you know because you're trying to predict something that we don't have data from like we don't have the data on resistance training like robust data anyway and you're trying to predict something based on you know some theorizing that you're doing but you're, you're then trying to influence the training program but the training program like Harry was saying is like this is to get adaptations over time so we're trying to hypothesize or we're trying to use hypotheses as hypothesis um to influence yeah to influence our training decisions today but that influences our 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 adaptations and our results long term so it's quite hard to put this into practice in a resistance training set setting now the same holds true for we'll call them mixed athletes you know like say you're using it for um brazilian jiu-jitsu or mma or something like that you know because obviously there's a few different adaptations that we're we're looking for with those uh, sports so again it can be quite hard to put it into practice now that's not to say that it's impossible to do there are many coaches that do it and do it phenomenally you know so it, it can be done but if we're just talking about a, a generalized, you know, population, like the people listening to this, like you might be a coach yourself, you might be a, an individual training yourself. And you just need to dig a bit deeper in, into the numbers. If you're going to use them, like you can't just download an app or get a watch or get a chest strap and be like, oh, yeah, the app is telling me don't train today. So I'm not going to train today. Like, it's not that simple, you know, which like Ari was saying, like we've used it before with clients and even interpreting it, you know, relatively well. Like I, I would like to think that I know how to interpret it and I'm layering on this context. Otherwise I wouldn't be discussing it on the podcast. Um, even then still, it's like, I don't think this is actually leading to any better results versus just having a well-planned out training program itself it can be nice data to have, you know, retroactively if we're, if we're like, Oh, why are we not seeing the adaptations we want? Why are we not getting the results? And, you know, it, it can be nice data. Basically, as I said at the start, it's giving you a, like a window into the nervous system, you know? So if you're bringing in a lot of stress management protocols and you're like, I want some sort of proxy measure to see how these are influencing things, 
can be nice in that setting. However, it's like, well, do we have other things? Um, and yeah, we do. We have like subjective feeling. I'm, we're doing stress management. Do you feel less stressed? Yeah, I feel great. I'm like, do we really need HRV then? Potentially not. Yeah. And I mean, like the other thing, the other thing to consider as well is, is like the, the measurement itself, like when you do initially like measure it in the morning, this is a point I think I heard um, Dr. Andy Galpin make before, because I think him, I haven't actually read it, but him and um, a, a colleague wrote a book uh, titled Unplugged and is basically going through how, you know, we assume that all this addition of technology and tracking new things and everything is, is related to uh, progress, but it's actually not clear that it's always making athletes better. You know, is it, are we just tracking more things? And like one of the points I've heard him made it, make about HRV in particular is that, right, you wake up in the morning, your HRV is low, you're not ready for your session. So you decide, right, I'm going to do five minutes of meditation and breath work, and I'm going to chill myself out, put on some chill music, whatever. And then you reassess it after that. And now your HRV is increased. So it's like, like your overall physiology is not that different, but the measurement is different. So what do you make your decision based on, you know? So I think it is worth noting that there are those kind of dynamic factors as well. And, you know, you might've woken up at a different time in the morning, or you might have eaten at a different time yesterday. Like, for example, like I say this all the time, but basically like the, one of the easiest ways to make your, uh, your heart rate drop really, really low, just go on a diet, a really restrictive diet and just get really lean. Like my heart rate gets stupid low when I'm like lean, especially if like I fast for 24 hours or something like that. Like my heart rate is just be sitting there in the thirties, just not even a big deal, you know? Um, and if you're to look at things like heart rate variability, that's also affected by those variables, you know? So I think that's the thing with performance is that you could have an athlete who has just like lost like five kilos and their heart rate variability is way up but their performance hasn't actually changed, you know, and you're making, it's just a false positive for an improvement there. When in fact, it's just a, a change in body weight or, or energy availability, which could actually compromise their performance, you know, especially in strength sports, you know, you might actually need, have needed that extra body weight and you might need sufficient fuel available. And know your performance might actually be compromised despite that increase in heart rate variability. And, and you brought it up there, but like sports that are more complex in terms of their, skill requirements because i mean you know powerlifting for example while you do develop obviously very serious skills over time and that like you get to the point where i found my perfect technique um it's still just kind of one movement pattern for one lift more or less and slight perturbations to that but if you're talking about something like brazilian jiu-jitsu or um, mma or whatever like th those things are just far less easy to predict in terms of performance. And, and one of the things I've definitely found that myself where some days I go into BGJ training and I'm thinking, God, you know, today I'm actually beat up. You know, I might've done actually a weight training session in the morning. I know you do the same thing. Um, and maybe I had a tough day at college and I'm just feeling like shit and I'm thinking about not going, but I go anyway. And then I just have an unbelievable session, whatever it is, you know, something clicks or, you know, cause the thing is sports performance is just, we, we talk, we, you can zoom in on energy systems or the nervous system, but it's like, all right, you know, how's your psychology, uh, um, integrated within that and, and all the other variables. Um, so yeah, sports performance is messy, you know, um, nutrition comes into it as well. You know, I think you, you had some, a couple of extra things you wanted to, to mention on the, on the nutrition side of things. Just Patrick. Before we go into that, I just want to say just again on like the actual measurement itself, where you take it, like even just forgetting about different stress state, you take it sitting down versus lying. Yeah. 
there's going to be a difference. But as I was saying just before we got on the podcast there, like measuring it, like it's so environment dependent as well. Like there's the context has to be layered on there as well. Like if you wake up to an alarm and you know, you're, you're stressed out, you know, my wife or girlfriend or whatever is in the bed, I need to smash the alarm off and you know get out your stress and you're like, Oh, I have to do my HRV measurement. I'll do it downstairs. I'll lie down on the sofa and whatever. And like you're, you're taking the measurement and you're like, Oh fuck, it's terrible today. Like that's obviously different than if you, wake up naturally to you know birds singing out your window the sun is shining you live on you know i don't know whatever your idyllic thing you live on a a a a mountainous beachfront you know with trees in the background and you you walk down to the lake and you sit down on the pier you lie down on the pier and you know you 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 take your hrv measurement then you're like oh yeah it's, it's great you know like those two individuals could have the exact same training stressors, the exact same, all that kind of stuff, but just the manner in which they took the measurement has affected it. Now I do think those two different environments are going to affect your physiology differently. (laughs) One's more stressful than the other. What I'm saying is like, if you're trying to compare these individuals, like obviously that's going to be different, but the individual that wakes up to this more relaxed environment is probably always going to have a higher HRV in the morning when they take the measurement versus the other individual that's stressed out of their mind in the morning, rushing to work or whatever, you know, but they could be over the day, they could have a good uh, nervous system tone, if you will, you know, like they could be in a good position to train and go get, you know, train effectively and recover from it, you know? So again, it's, it's, even down to when you take the measurement, how you take the measurement and the, the environment, the context of that measurement, it has to be controlled for, you know, um, which is obviously extremely difficult if you have uh, an actual athlete who is, you know, training in different places, competing and doing different things. And especially if they're like a collegiate athlete, you know, they're like out one of the nights per week and they have exams and they have this, you know, it's like, this just gets very, very messy and, it can be hard to interpret. That's not to say that it's impossible to interpret. Like just because, you know, measurement is hard doesn't mean that you can just forgo it, you know, but what I'm saying is if you are trying to bring this in yourself, you need to realize that it can be quite hard to actually interpret the the information being presented to you. And now in terms of the nutrition stuff, there is actually some research to suggest that you could use like HRV scores to find out stuff like food intolerances, you know, like obviously, if you eat something and it makes you stressed out, you know, like normally you eat a meal and you include this ingredient and normally your meal, you know, you're fine. Your blood glucose is, you know, good. You know, your blood glucose control is good, blah, blah, blah. You feel great after the meal. There's nothing, nothing, an issue with that. And you eat this other meal and has this other ingredient, you know, and then you notice like, Oh, my blood glucose control isn't as good, or I feel stressed out, or I feel like digestive upset or whatever. Like some people have suggested, and there's, there has been some research in it in terms of using HRV to find ingredients or, you know, foodstuffs that potentially are, or you are potentially intolerant to, or have some sort of negative reaction to. However, I don't know how much I believe or, would you use that research? Because again, we're looking at the nervous system. The nervous system isn't telling us all about what's going on in the gut or the digestive system as a whole. So, you know, 
you might be able to pick up some things. It might be something that, you know, it's worth investigating. You know, I know there's some apps that are specific specifically for that, or they allow you to get like a two minute reading and you can just do that at any time per day. Like that can be handy to do after you have a meal and be like, Oh, this is a different meal. Oh, this is telling me that something in this meal was, is negatively affecting my HRV score or, you know, heart rate or different things like that. And it's like, okay, maybe something worth looking a little bit further into, but it could just be a case that you're eating a food that influences the, the nervous system in some way. Like, I don't know, caffeine, for example, is you could drink coffee and be like, take this, oh, I have a, an intolerance to caffeine. You know, it's like, maybe that's not the case. You know, maybe it's just the actual stuff in the, the coffee. Same with like some spices and herbs and stuff. It's like, this stuff could just be influencing the nervous system to some extent. And it's not necessarily uh, an intolerance or, you know, an allergy or anything like that. However, like if you're really stuck with your diet and you're like, oh man, I just don't know. So I keep having these negative reactions. I don't know what the fuck is going on. You know, it could be something to look into. However, in practice, very hard to do because people don't eat foods in isolation. It's not like you're just like, I just had a bowl of oats and it's just oats. You know, it's like, I only had oats, you know, or I had my dinner there and it was just pasta. You know, like no sauce, no nothing. It was just pasta boiled in water. You know, it's like, it's very rare that people eat like single ingredient meals, you know? So if you're eating a, a complex meal, you're like, oh, I had a spaghetti bolognese with a few different vegetables in it. And, you know, two different, <clears throat> two different meats and, you know, whatever it is, you're just like, how are you going to interpret what the, the, the ingredient uh, that caused this negative reaction you're seeing is, you know, it's going to be very hard to do, you know? So in practice can be very hard and it's not something that I am uh, entirely confident in being like, Oh, let's do this. Especially when we have other practices available to us and um, like elimination style diets and be like, right, we're going to stick with these and then introduce things and see whatever's going on it can be used in conjunction with that. But what I'm saying is that's not my first line of the fence or my first line of approach for, for, for this stuff, you know, and generally the people that recommend it as the first line are people that have, you know, an app to sell or, you know, they're, they're selling this stuff already, you know? Yeah. I, ha I have heard people propose the, I, I don't know, is it an index or just a pure ratio, but basically looking at their, like a, a relationship between heart rate variability and blood glucose and trying to use that relationship and what you're seeing as kind of a proxy for systemic inflammation, which like physiologically does make sense. So like, I mean, I can see like, like what you're saying in terms of someone having some sort of adverse response to a particular food, like you can see, it would make sense if you track those things. But um, at the end of the day, it's like, right, how, how, like, how much, much do you want to actually micromanage? So, I mean, it's like, you can also you just go in to get a blood test and get like C-reactive protein or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're done. You know? <laughs> yeah. Boom. Done. Yeah. Or just, you know, use your feelings. If it's a particular food, it's like, right, see how you feel when you don't eat that. Boom. Done. Square, square away. You know, like, I mean, I, I think like that's, it, it can be attractive sometimes to like, oh, I'm going to create a spreadsheet with uh my HRV and blood glucose. And I'm going to look at all the relationships between them and different meals and everything. But I mean, like some people love that, but I mean, the vast majority of our clients, like 
not going to get them to do that. It's also that's extremely just for hard experimentation. <laughs> extremely hard to do because, you know, sometimes you might have a reaction like two or three days later from something you ate like, you know, two, two or three days previous, like, um, or it could be, you know, really delayed. It could be, you know, something in your microbiome that, you know, when it eats this food, you know, produces these other uh, metabolites that, then these other, you know, microbiome boils eat, and then they produce these other metabolites. So you're getting this real delayed response, and you're like, "Oh, I always seem to have a negative reaction at dinner time, but it's because of something you ate at breakfast time." You know, so it's like this is very hard to use these, you know, proxy maybe metrics to discuss something that is, you know, occurring over hours. You know, like it's very hard to actually implement or you know, interpret yourself as an individual. And again, like, yeah, make a spreadsheet, do all your stuff. If you really, you know, feel it's going to be the thing that helps you to, you know, discover the issue. Um, and again, if you did have digestive issues, you know, it's pretty debilitating. So, you know, you're pretty willing to do whatever the fuck is needed. So yeah, go for it. However, I don't know how, how much trust I put in the validity of all of it. Yeah, like, I mean, you can, you can propose countless amounts of these different things that you could track and hypothesize and, and like, even even in terms of like nutrition, like it's, it's real cute that we're like, oh, yeah, let's track our macros. And maybe you look at a few micronutrients. But like, when you actually break down, like what's actually in foods that you eat, like, it's, it's just insane, the amount of shit that's there that could potentially interact with countless different aspects of physiology. And that's even our own physiology before you get to the microbiome and all the different organisms that are there that they, that their physiology could interact with. And yeah, nutrition's just, it's just really complicated, which is why we try to keep it simple and say, yeah, look, uh, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, <laughs> etc." <laughs> so yeah, anyway, that's anyway, anything else to say, the um, HRV stuff. HRV, no, nothing else. I don't think so. I think, I think that's, that's the vast majority of what we wanted to cover anyway. Yeah. I should say there are some articles on our website. Um, yeah, there's a good few relevant articles. There's, uh, there's, you go. I was going to say, eventually we will just have an article series on just HRV, just put yeah. it all together, just be like, yeah, they are there, interpret us at your will, you know, whatever. And obviously in the coach's corner, we will obviously discuss, you know, the practical application. Should you use HRV? When to use HRV? Who would you use it with? You know, for the more, more, coaching side of things like that will eventually be there um but uh yeah if you want further information by all means go to our website type in the search bar that's on the right hand side if you're on a desktop i believe it's on the bottom if you're on a uh, a mobile cellular device um, and just type in hrv and you'll find a good few articles that mention it and go in deep on it anyway Gary, what were you saying yeah no, i was just gonna say there's there's a full article on the autonomic nervous system itself, which goes into to more detail um, on, on the autonomic nervous system and where it has relevance in terms of physiology and the different effects that the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system mediate. Um, and HRV is mentioned within that article. And it's also mentioned in the cardiovascular physiology article. So, I mean, if you combine the cardiovascular physiology with the nervous system article there's two of them but particularly the autonomic nervous system article i think you'll get a good idea of um where this fits in in terms of health and in terms of the cardiovascular system um in particular and and as you said we'll write more specifically on the training and and nutrition um implications of that but but yeah that's that's hrb right i have nothing else to say really need to pee so gary hanging to pee as well (laughs) right 
Right, guys. So, yeah, as you know, um, we are launching the Coaches Corner um, within the next month or so. That's going to be a platform dedicated to personal trainer education. So for coaches who are looking to further their education with um, detailed discussions of things like um, exercise mechanics and anatomy, like breaking down different exercises and saying, you know, these are the different variations. Uh, this is the, these are the mechanical variables at play. These are the anatomical variables at play. And here's my, you might want to adjust them for different clients, things like that. Things like, uh, all right, you want to create intake forms for your clients, or you've got a new client. What are you going to do now? Like, what's the next step? Um, things like understanding your basic anatomy, understanding programming. So when you when you have that client, you've done your intake forms. They told you your goals. We've worked through all that. Now what do you do? You know where do you go from here in terms of programming and in terms of you know balancing uh, primary training variables that are important for the adaptations they're looking for and things like novelty and enjoyment, etc. So they're all different things that we'll be discussing um, within the coaches corner and a lot more. So if you are interested, you can pre-register your interest below and you'll get an exclusive discount when that does launch and there's no commitment involved. So once you pre-register your interest, you'll be on the wait list. You don't have to commit, commit to anything. Um, and you, but you will get a discount if you do. So get on that. Um, the newsletter as well in general is something you can subscribe to. So our newsletter, uh, goes out weekly and you subscri- can subscribe to that to keep up with new content that we're producing as well as, um, recommended resources that we found across the internet that we think might be educational or useful in some way. Um, we've also got the triage method community, which is our free open access Facebook group. Um, and there's been a lot of productive discussion in there recently, you know, different questions from people and posts from people. Um, and also we share like different uh, research papers and stuff in there that we might come across that we don't just post on our Instagram, you know? Um, so do get involved there if you're interested. Um, and other than that, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel would recommend that's triage method on YouTube. You should like or subscribe or what, what would you say? Do you subscribe to a podcast? You do subscribe sure. to a podcast. Yep. Leave a review um, on the podcast. That would be helpful. Um, and other than that, Instagram at triage method and at skinny guys and at the real Patty Farrell, of course. Um, and you can like us on Facebook if you want. And I think that's most of what we we put out to the public. We do have online coaching spaces available as well. So if you are interested in online coaching, I know the UK gyms just reopened yesterday, I believe. Um, Whatever day this so, goes there. <laughs> uh, Whatever day this goes there. Oh, yeah. It's Monday. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, the UK gyms are reopened. A significant proportion of our clients are actually from um, the UK. So that's been pretty frustrating because all my Irish clients have been back in the gym and then I've just been waiting. And I, I like have one client. I just like to think of it as the Atlantic Archipelago. That's, that's who we approach. <laughs> we cater to the Atlantic Archipelago. I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying the British Isles. Um, I find no. that offensive. But the Atlantic yeah, Archipelago, I'll take that. Yeah, and I actually have one client from Scotland, and he said they're a week after um, England again. So like Scotland, like Scott, he's kind of like you know, I think they're they're nearly like pseudo Irish. They're kind of like yeah, we we don't really like England either. So uh, yeah, but we'll we'll just wait one week it's and actually, then we'll follow. It's actually quite interesting because the Scots were all planted by Irish settlers, and like the Scots, the native Scots, the native native Scots were pretty much all killed by the Vikings, and um, to an extent, um, but they were basically settled by the Irish, which is actually quite funny because then Northern Ireland was all settled by Scottish people. So it was just Irish people moving around. Very interesting. But anyway. Didn't uh, Bojo propose to build a bridge from Northern Ireland to Scotland? Or was that, that was the thing, wasn't it? I think he's, he's thinking about doing like, that. It's actually very surprising how close Britain, Great Britain is uh, 
to to Ireland. Like I literally, I know it's insane. Literally from my house, I can see because I live over a mountain, so I can literally see uh, the mountains, uh, the Cumbria Mountains in Wales. You know, um, and if, if you're up north, it's literally just a fucking stone's throw away. But anyway, insane. I really, yeah. So uh, yeah, same. Enjoy. Goodbye, folks.